Hello and welcome to episode two of Public Health Cafe. The podcast that shares stories and current events happening in public health in Canada. We are excited to host this podcast as a forum for discussion on all things public health related with a goal of highlighting the Canadian perspective. We're your hosts, Joanna and Yue. Hi, everybody. And joining us today is Steph, who will be sharing their experiences working in migrant health research as a PhD candidate, researcher, and immigrant. Steph, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks um, for coming. Steph, would you like to introduce yourself and your work in this area to our audience? Yeah, so just to quickly introduce myself, uh, I'm an immigrant woman, like you said, uh, I'm of Indian origin, but I was born and raised in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. I moved to Canada about seven years ago in 2013, uh, and I lived in Nova Scotia and moved to Vancouver three years ago. Um, and just to talk about my work a little bit, I'm a PhD student at Simon Fraser University and a research associate at the Center for Gender and Sexual Health Equity, which is a research center here in Vancouver. And my research is based within the IRIS study at the center, uh, which is a study of immigrant and refugees healthcare access in BC. And so a lot of what I speak about today will be based on my own experiences as an immigrant, but also a lot of what I've learned through my role at the center and as a student, where the research that we do is largely with immigrants with precarious status in BC. Um, and I really owe, uh, honestly, a great deal of gratitude in terms of what I know and what I understand and what I've learned in the last few years to them uh, for so vulnerably sharing their experiences um, in our research. Thanks. And so just related to this topic, I kind of always like starting with definitions. And I want to hear what your thoughts are on the difference between immigrant health and migrant health. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So, I mean, Immigrant and migrant health broadly is obviously the health of immigrants, but we often hear the terms immigrant and migrant used interchangeably. And I remember doing a Google search about this like pretty early in my PhD because I just saw both terms everywhere. Um, and according to the internet, migrant uh, symbolizes temporary movement uh, and immigrant symbolizes permanent movement. So, you know, migrants move temporarily, permanently. There's also the difference between international and internal migrants. But in my research, I use the slash term. So like I am slash migrant to include both of these experiences. Um, but also the slash term includes all immigrants regardless of status and importantly recognizes people who don't have status. So those who are undocumented or have temporary status uh, because these populations are often excluded from research, from policy um, and different interventions. And I think uses, using the slash term recognizes key differences in ways in which these different groups of immigrants are treated, um, their rights um, and their health, et cetera. Thanks so much for defining that. And you kind of touched on this a little bit, but can you tell us uh, a little bit more about your research and your um, the focus of your PhD? Yeah, so the focus of my PhD broadly is immigrant women's access to healthcare in BC. Um, and the woman that we, it's qualitative research. So the woman that we interview, um, 
largely have precarious status. So a lot of them are undocumented or have lived experience of being a refugee, a temporary worker, like farm worker, um, or students. So students also have temporary status. And for my PhD specifically, I'm particularly interested in the experiences of immigrant women youth. So those are younger immigrants um, who have you know, unique challenges um, and they're in the sort of formative period of their life. Uh, and this interest also comes from my personal experiences coming to Canada as a young immigrant. And then of course, adding another sub focus of COVID because um, that is the reality. And I did obviously didn't start my PhD with the focus of COVID, but um, you can't run away from it. And immigrants really are bearing the brunt of the impacts of the COVID pandemic. So uh, that is also a focus of my research that I'm still exploring and learning about. Yeah, I mean, you, you actually touched on another question that we had was, <laughs> how was your PhD journey so far? And you kind of can't escape um, COVID's impacts, right? And did you anticipate some of these kinds of difficulties and challenges that you've encountered? One of them maybe being COVID and how that has uh, maybe changed or impacted your work. Yeah, um, my PhD experience has been good so far, I'd say like overall. Um, there's, you know, there's always challenges with anything uh, with regards to COVID. Obviously, that was unexpected. But luckily for me, that hasn't changed my progress in terms of my research that much. And I know it has for many people out there. Um, yeah, so now what's changed the most is that we've started speaking to immigrant women about their experiences during the pandemic. So we've had to, you know, create new interview questions, think about uh, what are some key issues, talk with our community partners and learn more from immigrants themselves. Um, it was it was difficult at first for me to think about doing COVID research because of course, um, you know, we also have our own personal struggles. Uh, you know, I was facing a lot of mental health challenges with the pandemic, being in isolation, all of that stuff. Um, but it's really important to address these issues, I think. Um, yeah. That I, I guess that's it in short. Yeah, and thanks for being really open um, about that, and just even opening up in general about uh, you, your PhD studies uh, and your research. Like you mentioned, uh, doing a PhD can be an isolating experience on its own. And right now, adding this whole physical distancing and travel restriction, a question related to your own self-care when it comes to mental health. What are some of the activities you are doing to combat that, to cope with this whole situation? I don't know. <laughs> if you have any tips, please share them with me. Um, I feel like, I mean, I think for a lot of people, the experiences have been so up and down since mm -hmm. March or even before March. And it's been the same for me, you know, and constantly, even on the daily, like having good days, having bad days. I mm -hmm. think that's normally even outside of the pandemic, but mm -hmm. I don't know. There's been phases. Last week I bought a whole bunch of like paint and I bought a couple <laughs> of canvases. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to paint. Was supposed to do that last weekend. Didn't happen. So hopefully this weekend. Um, but, you know, I try to exercise. That also happens in waves, but I try to make time for that. I recently started a meditation challenge with a few friends and oh. we're on day two of that. So that's mm -hmm. been really nice. Um, 
And then just spending time with my partner. I don't have uh, family here, so mm -hmm. he's been really helpful for me and not staying at home <laughs> where I live alone. Um, yeah, so I, I tend to spend time with him and his family a lot too. Yeah, that's yeah. good to hear that you're doing all these activities to stay connected. Um, I do have uh, another question, Steph. You mentioned that you did quality research and I'm, I mean, this is kind of a personal interest, but I'm wondering how in your research methods, how it has changed or has it changed uh, with COVID? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And it's been, it's been very interesting to kind of figure that out and learn from other people in the field who are also doing the same thing and have, have had to shift their, you know, the methods that they're usually used to. So we were always doing in-person interviews before the pandemic, in-person interviews at our offices or um, at a place of the participants choosing, could be in their home as well sometimes. But obviously that's not happening anymore. So we, we started off just by doing phone interviews, but then, you know, expanded that where Zoom has been very popular. So we've been doing interviews through Zoom um, mm -hmm. in safe ways. Um, so Zoom, phone, we've gotten like approval from the ethics boards to do uh, WhatsApp, WhatsApp call interviews. So audio or video as well as FaceTime. So we have all of those options, which have been really helpful. And then we've also been able to do in-person interviews outdoors at a distance. So a few of those, some have sometimes worked out because not everyone has stable internet connection at home or they're not um, necessarily, they don't have a private space in their home. Or sometimes, you know, people just want to get out and have time for themselves to share their experience. And mm -hmm. that can sometimes look like going out to meet with an interviewer who's not necessarily mm -hmm. your friend, but it's still someone who is listening and it's time for you to get out and get some fresh air too. Mm -hmm. So yeah, those have been some of the methods. Yeah, do you think that actually um, it made it more or less accessible, you know, if you're using different methods like WhatsApp, Facebook, do you think it'll it'll make it more accessible or less accessible using those other methods? Also considering that um, the interviews could happen in uh, different times of day? I think it's more accessible for sure. Uh, just, you know, options are always accessible and we still have that in-person option at a distance. The only thing is that everyone has additional stressors and additional things going on right now. So it's like we have all these options, but for many people, they're not able to participate in an interview at all because they can't take time off work. They don't have childcare. Um, and we do provide childcare money, but they don't know anyone who they can pay to look mm. after their children or who they feel safe to pay. So I think it's more accessible in terms of giving people more options to share their experiences. I think more options is always good. And it kind of shows us that, you know, before we were pretty, I don't want to say strict, but like, we definitely were emphasizing and stressing on in-person interviews because it does help in many ways. And, you know, there are pros and cons to the virtual nature of qualitative interviews. But I think overall, it's been positive in providing people with more options, especially at a time where people are struggling and don't, you know, they don't have the time to like sit down and talk to you for two hours because mm -hmm. they could be earning money or cooking or spending time with their children and mm -hmm. just figuring things out. Yeah, no, I actually, that's a, I didn't, I was thinking, oh, more accessible, but yeah, I, I didn't even think about that whole, you know, if 
they do need childcare, that other facet of what's going on in the world um, and how that has changed everyone's lives that maybe even if it is more accessible, um, something like an interview is not high on a life priority for in some cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in these interviews, we always say, you know, when talking about risks and benefits, there are no direct, direct benefits that participants mm-hmm. are getting, except, I guess, the honoraria um, and childcare money. But, you know, research takes, we know that research takes time. It's not like you just share your experiences and then you hear changes the next day. So taking that into consideration, it's like, I think it's important to be able to describe the potential benefits of the research in ways that are meaningful and to conduct the research in ways that are meaningful so that participants don't feel like they're just meeting you for this two-hour conversation and then never hear from you again Mm -hmm. um, when they've been so generous and vulnerable in sharing their experiences. Yeah, no, like I'm sure a lot of the participants who are part of this project, they're sharing their own personal vulnerable experience in a way they also want to make a positive change in immigrant women's health, particularly because like you mentioned, they have this identity as a migrant, as an immigrant, but also they have other, so many other social identities and responsibilities like taking care of their children, their partners and their family. And the fact that they can take two hours of their time to share the experience and talk to researchers, that's very generous of them. Yeah, and it can be a really empowering experience as well. And, you know, we always frame immigrants as being like vulnerable. And, you know, many of them are because of like systemic and structural issues, but they're also so resilient. And like you said, they're more than just immigrants and they have so much to offer if people to sit down and listen and take an interest, you know, and that comes with so many things like language barriers and all of that. But Mm -hmm. there's been like a lot of neglect towards the immigrant community. And sometimes Mm -hmm. these interviews, can be really fun and you know we are talking about like serious things and mm-hmm. a lot of unfortunately issues that they're facing with regards to healthcare access but um yeah they're they're very happy to share their experiences and sometimes uh, just want a platform to be able to share yeah share definitely them. yeah and kind of like like you mentioned immigrants are very resilient and they know uh, they learn how to like reach out to other services to other people it's easy to think they are vulnerable, but in the same way, because of all the like hardship they're facing, makes them more resilient, make them more um, strong in general. No, totally, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm kind of curious. You mentioned um, healthcare access and how that differs amongst and um, between immigrant groups. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. Uh, to put it, I guess, in a fairly straight straightforward way. Uh, many immigrants don't have access to health care, as in they don't have health insurance. So if you're if you don't have status right now, you don't have access to health insurance. And when I say people without status, I, I'm not, you know, what's been in the media and traditional discourse has been people, you know, crossing the border illegally and like jumping over, I don't know, walls and fences and all this stuff. Um, But that's actually not how a lot of the people are getting, uh, are living without status in Canada, at least. It's because, you know, they're working, they have a work permit, and then for whatever reason, their employer lets them go, and then they don't have a work permit anymore, and then suddenly they don't have status. So it's not always how, like, 
the media portrays them to be. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's one example where immigrants without status don't have access to health insurance. Um, And then a lot of immigrants are here with temporary status. So that includes students on a study permit, temporary workers on a work permit, uh, like farmers, for example, uh, farm workers, sorry. And um, if for whatever reason they lose their permit, you know, on on farms, it sometimes there was this case where um, there was a farm. I think it was, I don't remember if it was in BC actually, but somewhere in Canada, where they uh, recruit or hired like a hundred uh, migrant farm workers from Mexico to come here and work on a farm and pick fruit. And the immigration process takes so long. And these immigrants, you know, they put a lot of money. They sometimes put all of their savings into this immigration process. And they come here. They came here. And by the time they got here, because the process takes so long, the fruit was ripe and fell. So they didn't require workers to pick them anymore. Mm. So then they sent them all back. And so situations like that, where people have literally put their life savings into this process, and Mm. then they're not essential anymore as Canada puts them they're not essential anymore and so they're not needed because these immigrants with temporary status are defined by the money that they bring to Canada's economy Mm. and that's really problematic because you're not caring about their rights their Mm. health their safety Um, so a lot of these immigrants with temporary status also don't have health insurance or have to pay out of pocket and if they lose their status then that's even harder because you're living in fear as well Mm. So yeah, sorry, it can be really complex. Um, and there's a lot of this different situations where someone may not be able to access healthcare. And that was just the example of health insurance. But there's things like, you know, not knowing where to go. Mm. There's things like language barriers where interpretation services are not always available. And when they are available, sometimes you're not always comfortable sharing your sensitive health issues with someone else in the room. Mm. Maybe that person's you know, from the same community as you and, you know, word spread. So it's not exactly confidential anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of things. Providers can be super racist and, you know, xenophobic. And when someone has, someone doesn't have a good experience, it doesn't make you want to go back. Mm-hmm. But most immigrants that, you know, we've talked to, it's sometimes it's like, you know, they say we are okay with paying, mm-hmm. but if you don't have status, they don't want to see you. Like, you know, they just ask for your ID and then you're like, okay, I'm going to leave now because if, you know, there's a risk of deportation, detention, family separation, all of that stuff. So, Wow. So I think you, you really, um, you know, you described really well how uh, certain migration streams or how um, just migration streams um, to get to, well, we're talking about Canada, but to get to Canada, but also, you know, you mentioned essential workers um, versus uh, the migration stream where you have professional migration, right? And how those also differ. So those migration streams differ and how that affects and impacts when they arrive in the country, right? Yeah, and Canada takes pride on its, um, you know, the way that they admit refugees and they're like, we accept so many refugees. And this kind of rhetoric has been very popular in the media, but if you look at the numbers, there's actually not that many refugees that Canada takes in compared to the immigrants and other subgroups. So economic migrants is the, is the class that most immigrants come under, and a lot of them come as permanent residents. So they already have secure status. So it kind of just speaks to Canada's priorities. And this happens in a lot of places globally, but you kind of say that you welcome immigrants and you want them to come here. But really what 
you're saying in terms of the data is that you're prioritizing their labor for them to come and serve the economy. But once they are here, you have to care for them, you know, Mm -hmm. like their health and safety. It's not just, they're not just like money makers. So Mm -hmm. on a personal level, me and my family also moved to Canada as permanent uh, residents. That process takes, took a really long time, took like two or three years. And we had to pay quite a bit of money to be able to secure our status here. Yeah, after we came here, they connected us with some services, but not very comprehensive. For example, health services, because we moved to Nova Scotia, there are not that many language interpreters because my parents, they don't speak English very well. And just seeing them navigating health systems sometimes. It is a little bit heartbreaking because they are a bit older and they spend their life saving to come here and then like seeing the like some of the difficulties that they didn't envision they would have encountered and they are facing that now. And especially right now with COVID and navigating this health system is even a bit harder. And I can imagine that happening to a lot of families here. Uh, so I'm really glad that you're doing this research just to trying to bring this issue to the general public. Like, oh, hey, we are here and we are more than happy to contribute to local economy. But in the meantime, we will also appreciate if health system can be a little bit easier to navigate. Yeah. And it's not a it's not a crazy ask to ask. <laughs> it's, it, you know, it's it's a human right and uh, it's not being treated as such. And a lot needs to change for sure. And there are a lot of great community organizations doing Mm -hmm. such good advocacy work around this Mm -hmm. all over Canada Mm -hmm. and you know sometimes they don't get enough spotlight too so Mm -hmm. that's really important I did want to ask you did you have to ever act as an interpreter for your parents uh yeah all the time so because right now I don't live with my parents anymore we are we live in different provinces so whenever she goes to a doctor she will actually record their conversation and send it to me and then I translate for my parents. I write down a little blurb so she can text it back to her physicians. So that's yeah. the process. That's um, wild. Can <laughs> you imagine? And, and that's like living in different provinces. And mm-hmm. that's also part of the reason why I'm interested in younger immigrants, because I, I hear a lot of these things happening too. And it can really take a toll on, you know, younger immigrants if you're having to attend this like really sensitive uh, sorry, an appointment discussing like a really sensitive health issue, it can mm-hmm. really take a toll on the mental health of the children who are interpreting. Yeah, and then kind of like gender also matters here too. I can, because my mom always sent me her recording with her physician, but my dad never mm. does that. Maybe if they had a son or something, the son would be the interpreter for my dad's physicians. But because there's that gender barrier here, I was never asked to be that interpreter the whole issue here can be quite complex that's super interesting yeah it's so complex and Mm -hmm. there yeah there's a reason like migration research is quite hard to do especially Mm -hmm. because you know immigrants speak different languages and all of these things and I mean it takes money to hire interviewers who can speak those Mm -hmm. languages and all of that stuff so that's why we don't see there is migration research out there, obviously, but not very nuanced or not always including immigrants with precarious status. I guess you kind of talk about um, how difficult it is to do research on migrants. Uh, recently, I attended this conference, uh, this public health conference virtually, and one of the presentations was on integrating health data on refugee and migrants in health information systems. The presenter kind of talked about 
one of the challenges they were facing is what are the indicators of migrant? Like what can concretely define this term migrant? I wonder in your research, have you encountered the same challenge? Like how in Canadian context, how do people define the term migrant? Oh, in the in Canada, I mean, as per like the government's definition, it'll I don't know it off the top of my head, but it'll probably only include people with secure status. Like I can mm. say that for sure. So people who are economic migrants, um, permanent residents, citizens, temporary workers, students, mm-hmm. those will be like the main categories um, included there. But you're so right in that the definition of immigrant is so different everywhere like not even between countries but within countries between provinces between states between studies like it's it's just so different and everyone kinds of kind of adopts their own definition and Mm -hmm. it's because the issues are so complex like there's so many different migrant subgroups but like I talked about earlier the slash term that's what we tend to use to kind of include the experiences of all immigrants Mm -hmm. but also not lumping them together so Mm -hmm. I guess they're all included in the definition, but like, for example, if I'm writing a research paper, I will explain, I will kind of differentiate the experiences of different subgroups of immigrants. Like Mm -hmm. these were like common experiences among asylum seekers. These were common experiences among refugees because it is important to differentiate those because it does vary based on your status. Obviously, Mm -hmm. the more secure status you have, Mm -hmm. the less barriers you tend to have. That's a pretty broad uh, statement so mm-hmm. not necessarily but that we, we tend to see that quite often um, but I don't have that much experience with experience with quantitative research and like mm-hmm. large data sets but I've recently been learning more about that in terms of like health indicators and I can just say that what I've learned so far is that it's just so important to define everything and mm-hmm. it's really complex when everyone defines it differently it makes mm-hmm. it really hard to compare um, findings across studies and also make broad conclusions mm-hmm. so I don't know if I have a solution but what I've just learned is that it's really important to define everything and that your definitions are good yeah. <laughs> and I don't I don't come up with great definitions off the bat like I definitely have to share them around like mm-hmm. make sure it's comprehensive enough make sure it's also specific enough um, mm-hmm. so that I'm not making broad generalizing statements mm-hmm. but yeah migration research is challenging yeah yeah like Steph mentioned earlier having a good definition broad definition is important but also it's important to understand the differences between each subgroups because because of those um, differences, they also have different challenges when they try to access healthcare. Yeah, totally. Very specific, very unique. Obviously, some mm-hmm. similarities potentially, but um, yeah, there, there can definitely be key differences between each subgroup. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Steph, for sharing your research and your PhD journey. You identified all those challenges that immigrant women are facing in Canada when they try to access healthcare. So I'm wondering, I know it's too early to, in your PhD journey right now to ask this question, but do you have any general recommendations to improve immigrant women's access to healthcare? Yeah, uh, I mean, there are probably so many, but and I can say that most of what needs to be done is at the structural and systemic level. Um, you know, 
the basic thing is like even providing safe access to interpretation services, things like that. But I would say that the immediate thing that we need to do, and this is something that a lot of immigrant advocacy groups across Canada have been advocating for, is to give immigrants secure status and give them permanent residency. Like, and I think that's the main thing, what needs to be done, because having permanent residency gives you gives you better access to healthcare and Canada makes it so hard for people to get permanent residency like you were talking about as well like it took you several years to get permanent residency and especially when we're talking about people who are here to work and contribute to Canada's economy their Canada's food supply all of these things like they should be getting permanent residency first like without them we wouldn't have anything so Yeah, I would say that's the most important thing. Um, But also there's things that people can do on a daily basis. Like I said, there's so many advocacy groups doing such important work on the ground. And, you know, we've been seeing a lot of petitions going around lately and it doesn't take that much time to sign them. And sometimes that can make all the difference. Sometimes it takes calling a number and reading from a script, which is fairly easy to do, especially people like us who speak English. yeah, and I, I just think this is a time for immigrants also with secure status to step up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, immigrants, like we said, there's so many subgroups of immigrants and everyone faces their own challenges, but more privileged immigrants also need to step up for those with precarious status. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, just have those conversations about immigrant injustice, um, especially if you're not an immigrant. Yeah, that's yeah. so true. Just keep this conversation going. and. Um, yeah, just keep advocating for the rights for those immigrants who, are, who don't have a secure status right now. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, those are very good recommendations. So thank you so much. So in your personal time, you also started up a virtual community. Can you tell us a, a little bit more about this project and what motivated you to start this project? <laughs> It's been on a long hiatus, but um, yeah, so it's called IWOC and it stands for Immigrant Woman of Canada. And I created this account on Instagram and Facebook. I don't remember when, I think it was in 2018 towards the end. It's been so long and I've done so little with it, but it's challenging to start something on social media because I feel like you always have to be on like mm-hmm. on it, like regularly posting, engaging mm-hmm. with people. And I don't always have the time and energy for that, which is something that I thought about before starting it, but I kind of just went for it. So the idea behind iWalk is I invite immigrant women all over Canada to share a picture and a story of their choice um, mm-hmm. about what it means to be an immigrant woman mm-hmm. in Canada. So it's super broad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people have shared stories about bringing their culture here in terms of the food that they cook. Mm -hmm. They've talked about the experiences of themselves and how they're different from their mother and their grandmother. And so you can see those intergenerational differences. So, I mean, I know I have a lot, I have a few messages in that inbox that needs to be checked and I'm so sorry (laughs) about that. But um, I basically started this platform because my whole life I have heard stories from immigrant women Um, and have had experiences myself that are both challenging but also empowering and I wanted to share both sides uh, because like I mentioned before you know immigrants are always portrayed a certain way Mm -hmm. um, in a not yeah in a negative way but like saying that they face so much injustice which they do and that's because of systemic and structural inequities but 
I mean, we already talked about this. They're just so resilient. And I want to highlight that part as well, because I think we need to shift the narrative a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's that's something that I started and haven't been doing a very good job at uh, monitoring or managing. But I don't know, hopefully soon. No. <laughs> it was a, such a good initiative. And yeah, because I also follow that Instagram account and just seeing all those stories, they were very touching and it's also nice to have this virtual community, especially right now where social connection is so important. It's just nice to see those uh, little moments and of heartwarming stories uh, of being an immigrant woman and like how they overcome those difficulties. So yeah, it yeah. was such a good initiative and don't feel bad about not updating it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're inspiring me now, especially like you said, like given the virtual nature of literally everything now, maybe I should restart it. It was it was based off of the idea behind like Humans of New York, but mm-hmm. I was like, realistically, I don't have the time or capacity to interview people in person, even though I would love to do that. Um, so yeah, I just kind of created a platform where people could submit it to me through email. Um, but yeah, hopefully I'll continue it. I also just wanted to use it as a platform to share resources and mm-hmm. services in the community. Uh, there's a bunch of immigrant uh, organization, immigrant serving organizations that follow the account as well. So I was hoping mm-hmm. to be able to, you know, share their services more broadly because mm-hmm. IWAC has actually reached people and like reached a lot of people. I think based on the stats as of a year ago, mm-hmm. <laughs> it reached like over 45 countries or something like oh, crazy wow. like that. But that's, you know, that's just the power of social media and the internet. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it can be used in such good ways. So, yeah. so maybe I'll get back on it. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, just sharing all the resources and all the stories. Good. So do you, you want to give a shout out to your account name or handle in case? <laughs> yes, it's at Immigrant Woman of Canada. <laughs> no, all lowercase, no space, no um whatever they're called symbols uh, <laughs> and also shout out to everyone who participated already there's only been a few people but the stories have already been so amazing um yeah and i'm just really grateful and on facebook as well i think you can just search immigrant woman of canada and it's a a facebook page if people still make those <laughs> yeah so shout out to our audience whoever want to submit their immigrant story please send it steps way yeah it's immigrant woman of canada at gmail.com <laughs> welcome back and let's get to public health related news during this section we will share and discuss current news stories relevant to public health in canada today's article published in July 2020 on Global and Mail, is titled, Canadian Universities Scramble to Maintain Flow of International Students and the Revenue They Bring. We chose this article because the author discusses a very special group of migrants, international students, which generally do not get that much attention in the public health field. Over the past decades, thanks to globalization, the revenue that international students brought to Canada post-secondary institutions had tripled. Just in last year, 2019, international students count for roughly 25% of total student enrollment in Canada. Uh, However, due to travel restrictions and other new realities caused by COVID-19, there's been a drastic decrease in students who are flying into Canada from overseas, which has caused a significant financial loss 
to Canadian universities. It is, while reading the article, um, it is certainly unfortunate to see that academic institutions are suffering from this global pandemic, but I was also feeling really bad for the students who wish to pursue their post-secondary education have to put their life on hold due to this pandemic. Since both of you uh, read this article, I wonder what are your thoughts on this? I have a lot of thoughts on this. <laughs> um, and I guess to go straight to the point, I think they really highlighted racism and capitalism and colonialism <laughs> that is rooted in Canada's immigration systems and academic institutions. Mm -hmm. So I guess I have a lot to say, but maybe I'll pass it on to Joanna first if she has any like initial reaction yeah yeah definitely um i mean one thing that really stood out for me because it's been something i've been thinking of um all throughout when i was a student um was just how much the educational systems or the educational institutes are essentially run as a business um and and you know even just talking about the revenue international uh students bring in um you and I were talking about this earlier and we were thinking, we were talking about the recruitment drives mm -hmm. that some, um, some administrators go into other countries uh, to, you know, to shore up more interest uh, into Canadian universities, um, which is, you know, in and of itself, it's great. But when it comes to, you know, having those things in place to ensure that once international students um, come to Canada, you know, be it facilitating, you know, that transition uh, to stay in Canada, or even just like beyond just thinking of international students as a quote unquote revenue stream. Mm -hmm. While I was reading the article, they also mentioned there have been a steep growth in terms of international student enrollment in Atlantic Canada. Both Steph and I, we went to University in Nova Scotia. So some of the universities, they've definitely made a deliberate choice to go to China, for example, to go on these recruitment tours, trying to really bring in those um, revenue that international students can bring and then try to use that as a kind of like a financial pipeline to save those universities who are already financially struggling to basically kind of like get revitalized as a business again. And... I'm sure a lot of the internationals, like a lot of the international students feel the same way too. When they first came here, they don't get that transitioning uh, service, like language and like access to healthcare, for example, and even mental health services, because it is such a big transition, both physically and mentally, but uh, you don't see that on university campus. And the fact that all those universities are seeing international students as a revenue, it seems a little bit dehumanizing. And the fact alone that international fees are two to five times more than um, non-international students when they would be receiving essentially the same courses uh, and the same university experience, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, they mentioned that in the article and also that most, they had like this graphic that showed that most of the international students in Canada are racialized. They're all from India. Well, not all, but I mean, the top two are from India and China. And, you know, the, that and the tuition difference, like these are not by coincidence. And they also mentioned how 
applicants from China are being rejected, uh, like their applications are being rejected. And this just is like clear systemic racism and xenophobia that's like rooted in Canada's immigration system. And the, just the way that the article was written, it was so, it was quite cringy and like quite disgusting in some places, to be honest. Like, I think they started off talking about how like travel restrictions, quarantine and online learning are disrupting the rent revenue source. And, you know, you, you both mentioned really well about how international students are, you know, described as a revenue source, which is like so dehumanizing. And then they talked about how they're going to implement this like chauffeur service to quarantine rooms and have catered meals and chartered mm. flights as options in the fall. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like okay, yeah, they, basically, they were like, we're doing all these great things. There was no talk of like all of these measures to protect students lives and their survival and achievement in their studies. And you know, what the article really said is that we need to do all these things to basically keep them alive and to be able to shell out their money and protect universities' global reputation. Mm -hmm. that's, that's actually what they said. Like, they used the words, like, international reputation. They were super clear on that. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I just feel like the article really shows as Canada's priorities and their perceptions of immigrants with temporary status as money makers serving the sole purpose of contributing to the economy. Mm -hmm. um, in the case of international students. And, you know, this is similar to examples that we talked about earlier in the episode um, about like uh, migrant farm workers here to advance Canada's food supply. Like mm -hmm. it's that one purpose that immigrants are here to serve mm -hmm. the economy. And yeah, it's really, it's really unfortunate and kind of gross. Almost seems like they are kind of disposable in a way. They only want you to be here mm -hmm. for a short period of time, contributing yeah. whatever you can. But after this time, like for example, after your work permit expires or your study permit expires, they make it very hard for you to stay here permanently. So yeah, like you mentioned, it's very systemic and troubling in a way. Exactly. And you think that since they contribute so much to um, institutional and labor costs and mm -hmm. it's very clear like Canada knows that they contribute so much you think that they're treated better with more mm -hmm. dignity with more respect um, and again in this situation you know granting permanent residency in a way that has less barriers is really the least that they can do given all of their contributions to society. Yeah, and um, I mean, this might shift the conversation a little bit, but I am curious about the shift of universities and education in general into online learning. I mean, even before the concept of online learning or they used to call them MOOCs, uh, mass really? something online learning courses, but essentially um, if you are in it for like the education, there are other ways uh, to access this education and it makes it more accessible, right? And so now I'm curious your thoughts on this this shift of like online learning and for universities, you would still pay the same tuition. Yeah, I think that's horrible. <laughs> I mean, like, and there's like the reason I moved from Abu Dhabi to here is that Canadian uh, universities are just more reputable internationally, like compared to those back home. But, you know, it was also the idea of coming here, starting a new life here, settling here, um, getting permanent residency, starting a new life here with more opportunities, you know, so it's not just with international students. There are, of course, there are definitely international students who come for the purpose of studying and they have every intention to go back or go live somewhere else afterwards. But a lot of them, this is an entry point to starting a new life here for whatever reason. So yeah, I think having the same tuition is just 
crazy because, and I think in the article, then I'm just looking at my notes here, but in the article, they said that universities worry the students won't pay high tuition without Canadian experience. Like, obviously, but they're worried. They don't want to pay that, but, you know, Canada is worried about their economy, not the education that they deserve and the support that they need. Because like you said, during COVID, students are facing unique issues. They're learning across different time zones. They're coping with family separation, financial difficulties, um, you know, continually facing xenophobia. They are experiencing fear associated with losing temporary status for, for many reasons. And, you know, it is a privilege to be studying in university, but international students are still a precarious group of immigrants that need to be supported. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah, that's like that's a good point because I guess a lot of people, uh, local people, when they think about international students, immediately think, oh, they have money, they can just pay for everything. But some, in some cases, it's true, but most of the cases, not true. A lot of them, they came here, they they do want to have a better life, better education and just overall personal growth and mm-hmm. uh, if there are so many barriers it just seems very inequitable because they are paying a uh, higher tuition overall it's not very fair yeah and it made me wonder um <laughs> that line which you mentioned stuff which actually made me laugh the chauffeur service to quarantine rooms <laughs> uh, daily health checks with a thermometer for every student possibility of chartered flights and it just made me wonder um how much of that or what is in place for um, current students in universities who choose to go back to universities or on campus, right? Like what kind of policies or measures that they currently have for those students? Uh, because then it'll kind of show the difference, right? They're, they're going out of their way to think about doing chauffeured services to be able to keep the revenue that these students mm-hmm. have. Uh, versus what they might actually be doing with their current students now or the students there now. Yeah, it, it's horrible. And it's they've made it quite clear that all of that is not being done for safety, which is, it, the article was just so interesting because they had every opportunity to even like pretend like they were doing this for safety, but they just <laughs> like didn't. Um, so it was, it was so clear, like who else is experiencing this treatment unless they're paying mm-hmm. Canada. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, also, it almost seems like they are trying to fish the bigger fish overseas, but like the ones that they've already captured, they're just here. They're in this bucket. They're, yeah, <laughs> they're stuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, just yeah, that was a like, really good analogy. <laughs> just kind of like what Joanna mentioned earlier, new incoming students are getting all those special treatments, but people who are here already domestic students for example they are not getting like health checks and they are not getting the attention that they should have been getting and all the protection they should be getting either because they are also paying the same amount of tuition but they are doing classes online they're trapped in their dorms it just remind me of this another article that recently read some students actually got expelled from university yeah. because they broke COVID-19 rules I know they are trying to make example out of those students, but also in the same time, in the same time, their rights are not being protected. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, that was a really good point. And there was that article released yesterday um, that talked about, well, it was a group of like over a hundred like leaders um, calling people in universities to take a better uh, approach and more humane approach to students 
students during COVID and they talked about that exactly like students getting expelled because they're not following COVID protocols. Um, there's been a lot of focus on young people like having parties and the approaches have been like uh, using shaming or like emphasizing abstinence. Um, but we know that harm reduction <laughs> is a good approach to use, like abstinence doesn't usually work. Mm -hmm. And we know that harm reduction works based on sexual health research and substance use research um, and practice, but just you know, building ways for community engagement in safe ways, providing mental health support, um, allowing people to socialize safely mm -hmm. while engaging students in these you know, in every stage of the intervention process, like those are some ideas that the article shared would be useful and I thought were really like helpful. You know, it's not that helpful to be like, young people are doing all these bad things. Like we need proper solutions that are realistic mm -hmm. and that meet people where they're at. And I think those um, were some helpful examples. Mm -hmm. From a health promotion point of view, all those people should also understand why young people want to go outside because they are craving like social interactions so understanding the cause can help people create a better solution maybe some better channel for them to to have the social life virtually and uh, connect them to mental health services virtually yeah just plain telling them to stay home that's not very helpful because nobody wants to be in isolation but trying to create an alternative solution for staying at home that alternative solution should be offered yeah, agreed. Like international students and just immigrants in general can often be really isolated. Even if you have a family here, it's it's challenging to also just be home with your family, yeah. you know, every day, all day. So people need ways to be able to get out and be able to do it safely. Mm -hmm. So yeah, definitely more interventions around that uh, would be helpful. And also not forgetting that a lot of international students also have in-person jobs, you know, a lot of mm. them might be working in, I don't know, retail or, you know, low paying jobs, but essential jobs mm -hmm. that, you know, most immigrants have essential jobs here. Um, and they still need to do that because there are financial challenges and that might have even increased during COVID. So mm -hmm. I, like, we just need to stop like this image of young people just being like a group a whole population really of reckless humans mm -hmm. <laughs> because people are also just trying to, Okay, obviously there are some people who are not following COVID protocols, but I would say that the majority of people are just trying to be happy and mm -hmm. um, are following protocols mm -hmm. and are uh, need to engage in safe ways and also need to work. And sometimes that's in person. Um, but yeah, this the article wasn't great, um, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, but definitely recommend the article that was released yesterday. Um, mm -hmm. That's all the questions we have for you, Steph. So thanks again for joining us today and sharing your research, uh, sharing your research on this important topic. So before we wrap up, do you have anything else to add or any other shout outs you want to make? I don't think so. I mean, it's been fun. Thanks for the opportunity to share and also catch up. For everyone <laughs> listening, we all did our Masters of Public Health together. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but it's it's just it's nice to catch up and chat mm -hmm. about all the things we're passionate about. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, there's there's a lot of a lot of work we need to do in terms of advocacy uh, for policy change and mm -hmm. reforms of systems, holding leaders accountable. And we already have a lot of evidence. I can't emphasize that enough. Like we do need more research in some areas, but like 
I think we all know the standard phrase of we need more research and you know we have we have a lot of research that we can act upon so um, just wanted to note that yeah definitely um, turn research into practice and action <laughs> yes we love action thank you for joining us though thank you thanks for having me Thank you.